Welcome to the Real Education Podcast. I'm your host, Blake Bowles, and on this show, I interview remarkable people who think way outside the box in education. To listen to more episodes, learn more about my guests, or become a patron of this ad and sponsor-free show, visit blakebowles.com slash podcast. You can also email me at yours truly at blakebowles.com. Now, on to the show. My guest today is Misha Golfman, founding director of Croca Expeditions in Marlowe, New Hampshire. Misha, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Blake. Tell us what Croca is, what it offers, and who it's for. Croca is for kids, kids ages um, six to uh, whatever age you decide you're not a kid anymore. Most <laughs> the kids are done with us by age of 19, but some... Um, stay around for for much longer as a matter of fact um, about 80 percent of our staff uh, represent kids who stayed on stayed on with croca <clears throat> and croca is um wilderness adventure school but uh, uh those words don't quite describe what croca really is because we try to live our whole life here not just part of it so on our wilderness adventure we grow most of the food that we take with us out on the expeditions and we make a uh, large amount of clothing and equipment that we take into the wilderness with us. <clears throat> and um, we start our meals with a song and a ritual. And um, uh, we have, when we walk by anything in the world that needs our help or any injustice, we change our itineraries. So <clears throat> Kroka is uh, uh, a, whole, a whole life school um, with the backbone of, um, of wilderness adventure. My next question was, what separates it from other outdoor adventure programs? But you, you seem to have answered it. It seems to be more of a, a whole life uh, philosophy or a more holistic approach than maybe a program that just takes young people out into the wilderness and teaches them a few things and sends them back home. Is that accurate? Yeah. And then our, you know, if you look at our motto, where, co- where consciousness meets wilderness, um, the most important approach for us is to live um, live to that and, and to walk our talk. And so this would um, this would make our life slightly more complicated at every juncture. If you look at a piece of equipment, you would say, hmm, where is it made and how is it made? And do we really need it? When you look at a piece of technology, um, <clears throat> you will say, um, you know, the, the other day, um, after many years, I'll give you an example. The other day, after many years of uh, needing it, we were able to purchase a four-wheel drive truck that pulled our <clears throat> large trailer right to the doorway. And after students unloaded, I felt sharp pain of a pain in my chest. And I realized that for previous many, many years, a uh, trailer would always get stuck being pulled by a two-wheel drive vehicle in the snow. And students would have to push and pull and work together as a team to put it in place. And then they have to carry their boxes a long ways <laughs> To the building and uh, we sat down and said wow this is an amazing convenience but we have lost something um so considering that at every step of our lives uh what is the gain and what is the loss and how does it affect the whole the whole picture uh and how what we do affect the society around us and the in the earth that we live on that's uh, at the heart of croca and so everything takes a little more time 
everything takes a little more time here, um, and, it's, and it's worth it. You're an accomplished wilderness adventurer, and where did you start your life, and how did you get outside? Um, I was born in uh, St. Petersburg, Russia, and my family, uh, I was born in the long-standing outdoor tradition. Every summer, my family would spend a month on the wilderness expedition, exploring waterways by by small folding kayak uh, in a group with other people, living this uh, really awesome nomadic lifestyle, foraging and working on farms for food and fishing. And I had opportunity to learn from uh, many elders, many mentors in my growing up years, and loved that whole lifestyle and loved making equipment in our little city apartment in. Um, between the trips and loved uh, dehydrating food over the stove and uh, just all the aspects of adventure and life on the move. Um, I was introduced to it uh, very early and in a way that was not related to money, but was related to being crafty and um, finding resources that were not readily available and um, um, spending every uh, moment of free time out of doors away from the away from the city life that was really important for our family and uh, traditional ways of food preservation were very important and so the importance of this was not so much about the choice of lifestyle but it was about the necessity for our parents to take us out uh, for the summer to have us live on the farm and then go on the expedition it was a way of feeding us because Food was not available in the city. The good vitamins and the good nutrition, and by traveling like this, we ate good, good fresh food. That was primary motivation for our folks to to travel like this. And it was also very, very cheap because you didn't need hotels or hardly anything. Just what you made with your hands. So that was my that was my growing up. And you grew up during the time of the Soviet Union. Is that why there? Is that related to the food problem? Yeah, yeah, the the big centralized food distribution system had its problems. What brought you to the United States? Well, uh, we were, uh, uh, my family was Jewish, and the um, desire to, to leave the oppressive Soviet Union lived in the family uh, since who knows what beginning of time. Um, and it was a long process for my grandparents who never saw the opportunity to leave, and then my parents uh, to leave. Um, and when the time came, when the opportunity presented itself, I was an adult, a young adult in Soviet Union, really committed to my work with children in the outdoors um, uh, and not really wanting to, to leave. And so my parents left and I stayed back and continued my work with students. Eventually, I went to the United States, visited with my parents and my sister, and um, still not convinced that I want to move because um, I was living a very productive life. Coming back to Soviet Union, however, uh, after spending a summer in the U.S., uh, it was hard to go back. And after that, I was like, okay, I guess I got to go. Although for my first several years of living here, I directed all of my energies back to Russian outdoor education, uh, creating a Soviet-American outdoor education exchange program and doing a lot of work um, 
bringing the best I knew from Soviet outdoor education to the U.S. and the best what I've been learning in the U.S. back to Russia and, and et cetera, many other initiatives. So it took me a while to land here, really. And when you did land, you became a public school teacher. Is that correct? Yep. I followed them um, once, I, once I landed here and I already had a, uh, I had a two-year-old child and I needed to feed the child. And I tried to do what I knew how to do, which was to guide. And I uh, um, started working at Hurricane Island Outward Bound School. And they have wonderful uh, program director, Kevin Slater, at the time, right during the staff training, <laughs> told me, you're not going to be able to make a living. You're not going to be able to feed your family doing this work in this country. You need to go back to teaching at public school. Once you're a public school teacher, which I was, <clears throat> said this would be best. You go and teach at public school. And continue working doing this work on the side and so i did become a public school teacher and i started uh following the model that i brought with me from russia i started an outdoor program at a public school in new hampshire and, and ran it for a period of years successfully um yet uh, still continue to work them towards something else which eventually became growth what were your experiences as a public school teacher? Uh, what did you teach and how did you deal with the system? Mm -hmm. I was a physical education and health teacher, <clears throat> which was a platform that allowed me to work in outdoor education. <clears throat> My outdoor education work was from grants. <clears throat> I had a school principal, which was uh, incredibly supportive and wrote for grants and was able to find money for us to do uh, for a time incredibly innovative outdoor education program where every child in the school K through eight spend the entire day outdoors once a month throughout the school year. <clears throat> uh, the experience was great. Uh, I loved working in the, in the public school and I loved developing the program. And um, the breaking moment for me came when the, the town meeting day, when the grants dried out and the town was given opportunity to vote to to uh, put the money in the next school year budget for the outdoor program, and they chose not to. And that was just realization um, uh, what it's like to be at the mercy of, um, of a public like this. And that was kind of mm, a little humbling and not, not a great experience for me because I gave a lot to, to the community. And worked hard to give opportunity to those children. And that was the time to realize that maybe public school system is not, is not the venue um, for, for my ideas. But the experience was good. I learned a lot. What role did Outward Bound play in your thinking, and how did it shape your ideas? Mm, Outward Bound was really important. Um, one thing that um, when I started working at Outward Bound, I was struck by how little some of the instructors who work there, how little expertise they had, not, not the senior staff, but the regular staff, and yet how much they knew on how to work with groups, how to bring people together, how to challenge groups to form a closer team. Those were not, uh, those were not topics that I learned in my uh, in my Russian outdoor education and going to the um, National Outdoor Leadership School in Russia, becoming a guide, working with children, work, you know, mentoring with adults. Never really, those were not 
topics that we address there. How do you work together as a team? How do you process your feelings? How do you work in inclusivity? How do you uh, work with people of different, um, uh, different, just how do you work with people with differences? And so that was my great learning at Outfit Bound, how to bring people together, uh, everything from games and initiatives to uh, utilizing the ropes course to um, using so many techniques that Outfit Bound had for furthering their their goal of, of building closer relationships between people. So it was a great learning platform for me, uh, meeting amazing people, amazing mentors there, <clears throat> um, absorbing like a sponge, I suppose, um, everything from the course uh, program areas to um, uh, the way logistics and equipment and food systems worked. Um, yeah, there was a wealth wealth of learning for me at Outward Bound, as well as I spent uh, 10 years guiding at Mahusi Guide Service. I spent a number of years working for a um, ropes course facilitation um, school uh, and many other formative experiences in the U.S. And how did all of these finally materialize in Croca? Mm-hmm. Well, um, so I was... Uh, Fortunate to be able to go to graduate school as a as a public school teacher had to you know advance my my education and um, the reason I was going to graduate school is there was something missing for me I would take you know I would take school kids out on outdoor experiences and they would ask me lots of questions to which I had no answers those questions had to do with our relationship with the natural world and the future of the humanity and the future and the health of the earth those were missing parts in my education I would work at Outward Bound um, and we would use nature as the background for challenging human being we would not take time to appreciate nature itself um, it was just oftentimes there was a hostile background for um, challenging people uh, so that through this you know they would break down and then pull, pull themselves back together and it was the nature itself that intrigued me so much and how do we relate to it in a on a different level so that was the reason for me to go to graduate school and once i had spent some time taking amazing classes at NTO graduate school and working with amazing professors and pondering on my questions, I realized that it may not be the public school where I destined. I also was is an ed, working as an adjunct professor at Plymouth State University teaching other education there as well and seeing some of the limitations in front of me. And all of a sudden, I just thought, well, Maybe there's something I could do that's uh, different from everything that's going on around me. Maybe instead of putting my energy into changing existing systems, which takes a lot of energy to change, maybe I could create a new system and put all my energy into creation rather than a struggle of change. What did Croco look like in the beginning? What were the first programs? Well, in the very beginning, I brought my ideas. Um, I had a I had a, um, a friend who I met at the graduate school, and he was a teacher at the local Montessori school. And he said, 
after hearing my ideas, he said, oh, why don't you come to us and test your ideas um, here? And so I had opportunity to start a summer camp at the Montessori school, which gave me all, uh, all the resources, the space and the vehicle <clears throat> that I needed to, to, to get started and publicize the programs. Uh, so the first program was based at the Montessori school for the first two years. And then we were ready to go on our own. And uh, very wonderful people at the Montessori school encouraged us, said uh, Lynn and I, that we could do it. We couldn't imagine how we'd do it uh, without having any capital. Uh, I remember going to my aunt and, asked, and borrowing $9,000 and buying a 15-passenger van. As a matter of fact, we still have <laughs> a passenger van. And people say, what are you doing with the 25-year-old 15-passenger van? Well, it runs really good. Um, so yeah, we had very we had no overhead costs. We had um, school allowed us to use its grounds. We had a 15 passenger van, and we had advantage of uh, kids who went to that school with whom we can work in the after school, by water paddling, rock climbing, and winter wilderness skills program. And they formed the backbone of summer camp. And we had first summer with. Um, uh, 35 kids, we offered Introduction to Adventure, which continues to be 21 years later, kind of uh, our most core begin beginners, young children program. <clears throat> and um, we offered uh, a Green Mountain multi-element expedition, which we now call Expedition Pre-Columbus. And I remember the maps were very old. I walked down the Green Mountains in the Valley of Vermont, and there was a road, and the road was not on the map. And I was like, what kind of road is that? Only later I realized it's a Highway 7 that's been there now for probably 30 or 40 years, but it wasn't on the map. And I've never been there before. It was a great, uh, it was a great adventure. <clears throat> uh, we went from 35 to kids in the first summer to 85 kids in the second summer. Um, and then one of the staff members who we hired said, I'd like for you to come to my farm and I'd like for you to look. I think we have a better place for your programs than being in town where you're right now. And that's how we moved to Trollhagen Farm in Newfane, Vermont. We spent a decade or so there, an amazing, beautiful place. And then we were able to find our own home here. So it sounds like Kroka offered a lot of shorter term wilderness skills and wilderness immersion programs. And then you came around to uh, offering a longer program, a semester program. And it seems like those programs have really taken off. But where did the idea for the semester program come from? It comes from kids, from, from students themselves. The students would, um, um, at the end of the summer, they would say, I wish I could live like we're living at Crocker. I wish I could don't have to go home. I wish I could live that way during the year. I wish I could go to school at Crocker. And so uh, there was eventually, little by little, the idea developed of this expedition that would go from Crocker to Canada uh, on scheme. Um, I've heard of this trail, Catamount Trail, that was being developed <clears throat> that followed the lengths of Vermont. And um, um, I remember one morning waking up on the shore of Maine coast and the girl, 16-year-old girl, saying, so when do you think this is going to happen? You keep talking about this idea of school at Crocker. When do you think it's going to happen? And I looked at her and I said, it's going to happen next winter. Let's, let's do it. And, and we did. 
Tell me more about the cross-country skiing semester program. Uh, mm. Where do they go? What kind of physical challenges are involved? Uh, how many kids do it? So we take 14 students on each semester program, and this is the maximum number of students we feel we could have in a kind of environment, in an expedition environment. <clears throat> um, we have uh, a month of preparation here at Croker Village during that time. Students make their own knives. They make their own expedition anoraks. Uh, they learn how to ski. Many of them have never skied before, so we have daily uh, backcountry ski lessons as well as we take them to a ski mountain, as well as we take them to a ski center. So they ski every day and they get, they, so they could take on the expedition. Their curriculum, academic curriculum, is centered around expedition preparation. Uh, each student has a job, uh, an important role in the community. Like one of them is a navigator, another one of them is um, expedition food manager, while the other one is a base camp food manager. So they have very real responsibilities and adult mentors to work with. And we prepare for a 300-mile winter expedition and then we start right from base camp and we ski from here to almost Canadian border uh, which takes us two months and uh, it's about 300 miles long at the moment we are um, just about over the to about two-thirds of the way into the expedition are you skiing through public land or private land with access grants yeah, we're skiing through um, Green Mountain National Forest. We're skiing through uh, private lands, uh, through unnumerable number of private land holdings. We're skiing through hundreds of ski, hundred ski centers uh, strewn along the backbone of Green Mountains of Vermont. Um, and we're following a lot of the times. We're following the Catamount Trail, um, and a lot of times we aren't. So it's it's a mixture of. Uh, public and private lands we're skiing through and we are not trying to be in the wilderness we are trying to we're in the wilderness every night when we're camping but our trail is uh, running through active logging operations people's farms sugar bush um, and everything that the life uh, good life in Vermont has to offer and part of students experience is learning how to interview folks, how to ask for help, how to ask for water when they're passing by someone's house, how to interact with people and, uh, um, and feel a sense of community in a larger world around them. I love how you've, you've created this combination of a wilderness, a serious wilderness experience, a physical challenge, a camping challenge uh, with an urban or small town say, experience that uh, it feels like a sort of a Lord of the Rings style uh, epic <laughs> adventure. Is, is that a, a justified analogy? Um, sure, that's a great analogy. But uh, it's, it's really, really on purpose because um, when, when more people oftentimes think about wilderness experience, they think big national parks or they think Alaska. Uh, how do we preserve uh, open spaces? We need to love open spaces all around us. I, I have a premise that there is wilderness everywhere. Um, we paddle rivers that people don't usually paddle. We hike con no, areas where people don't usually hike. Uh, we don't hesitate to walk through someone's land and knock on someone's door and say, can we camp? 
uh, in your woods this evening. <clears throat> uh, can we walk through? And in these meetings, while sure, once in a while they could be uncomfortable, but most of the time, people are just so welcoming and happy. And it's about, it's about changing culture around us, changing this culture of privacy, changing culture of private land holding with posted no trespassing signs. It's creating culture of trust, saying it's wonderful for people to walk through my land. And not only they will walk through my land, they will pick up trash. They will uh, fix the birdhouse. They will, do, they will contribute to service. And uh, we want for our students to have excitement for life, excitement for creating communities where they are and seeing and trusting people and seeing the world as an extension of their, of their family. Where do you think these philosophical ideas came from for you? Because these are pretty, these are pretty outside the norm, as you said, for, for wilderness expeditions, which, which typically, um, you know, like just focus on being away from, from people and civilization and don't deal with the messy aspect of having to go and, and ask a stranger for water or for camping permission uh, or to deal with those sort of societal challenges. What inspired you to, to make such a different program? Well, it's a combination of things. Well, number one, remember, I grew up in Soviet Union where uh, there was no private property, where all the property was public. And so uh, that's certainly one place where I witnessed this, uh, having a lot of colleagues who grew up uh, in Northern Europe and Scandinavia and in other European countries where uh, there's a clear right away for <clears throat> through any pub private properties for recreational activities and land is open uh, that's another inspiration the other inspiration is working with uh, indigenous people uh, both in Russia in uh, uh, northern Canada and in South America and learning the attitudes of First Nations towards the land <clears throat> and she's really wishing to foster an attitude that um, land does not belong to us, that we belong to the land. <clears throat> and uh, if uh, there is a resource that's entrusted to us, such as inherited property or property that we're able to buy, all we're doing is we're buying a privilege to use this resource. And like anything else, the best way to use it is to share it, to share it with others. And it's a paradigm shift. It takes a lot of work and uh, really figuring out. And it just goes to the core of... Um, of some of our bigger, bigger issues that we're dealing with, with uh, possessiveness and, um, and this idea that, that we can own the planet is just a strange idea if we really come to think of it. Um, and we are not afraid to challenge this notion with our students in a respectful way. Tell me about the Ecuador semester. That was the first semester program that was developed in Croco, correct? Uh, no, the first semester program is Vermont semester, which oh, uh, I'm wrong. Uh, as we as we travel, if I just can finish to say, you know, as we travel north and we arrive at our northern uh, base camp, um, we then return home. It's a it's a complete round trip. As the winter changes to spring, we paddle our whitewater canoes down to Lake Champlain. Then we row the um, handmade rowboats along the Lake Champlain, uh, and then we bike all the way back home. So we do a complete circumnavigation of Vermont on the winter on the winter semester that goes from January to June, and uh, all our study is intrinsically 
connected to places where we travel and we have in-depth study in uh, literature, natural history, and human history of where we travel from. So it's a really, really strong academic program in addition to uh, an amazing 700-mile um, um, expedition, continuous expedition. So back to the uh, Ecuador program. <clears throat> now this program has its own has its own um, beginning. Its beginning is in um, the group of apprentices that came to Croca from Ecuador, the three brothers. As every year we take apprentices uh, who come here to learn. Uh, and they came from Ecuador. And at that time, we didn't know even where Ecuador was. Um, but they told us and they invited us to visit. And um, we were just blown away by an amazing place, an amazing farm in the heart of the Andes uh, with lovely um, group of indigenous people working side by side um, to just create something really, really different and somewhat utopian and uh, um, just really, really rich uh, that, that does not at all exist here, no matter how much we love Vermont and New Hampshire or even northern Canada where we spend a lot of time. It's just so, so different. That was okay. It's worth it's worth the fuel to travel there, to see the generosity of this um, people, to see how people could be genuinely happy living in a little hut with a thatched roof and a dirt floor and owning just one pair of clothes that they wear on their back, yet they could have this such a genuine smile on their face and feel the greatness of each day in a way that we just don't seem to know how to do anymore. So that was the birth of our of our Ecuador program. <clears throat> and uh, Ecuador program is slightly different in scope because it's not a one continuous expedition, it's two expeditions, each returning back to the farm. Um, they preserve all the same elements, you know, what is core to Crocom. It's a high adventure, fairly high good element of risk. Um, it, it's a mixture of traveling in the wilderness and immersing in, in the villages and living with people and serving and serving people along the way. It's same autonomy to students and a great, great degree of responsibilities and um, fairly good, solid learning of skills. Uh, because in Ecuador, we travel from the highlands down to the jungle and then uh, we travel by bike and by boat, <clears throat> by paddling boat. Uh, and then we travel on foot from the farm to the highest volcano, to Cotopaxi, and we climb. Um, we do glacier school and we climb the volcano. So those are pretty good, long wow. expeditions. What kind of kids enroll in your semester programs? They're during the school year, and so I assume that most of the participants are taking a full semester off to make this possible. Uh, what are their shared motivations or characteristics? Mm -hmm. It's great. Well, the beautiful thing for us is that we don't have one type of student who enrolls in our program, and that's really that's a strength. I'd say we have two types, maybe, maybe more. So one type of student is a student who is highly successful academically in school and highly motivated, driven, strong-willed student who is questioning the the establishment and questioning the way they are. They are about to graduate from high school and they're about to go to uh, some high-powered college and all of a sudden they have a question. 
is this all really true? Is this how it is? Or is there more to life than was being presented to me in my AP classes? So that's one kind of student that we have. Um, that I would characterize this is a student who we really need them because they form an important part of the group, but they will do fine without us. If we weren't around, they would find their way. The second kind of a student that we have is a lost student. It's a student that would be incredibly talented and uh, um, their talents may be overshadowed by some of their learning challenges or some of their social inhibition. They are in school and they don't feel sense of belonging. They don't feel sense of connection. The traditional school system doesn't make sense to them. They do not want to confirm. They do not want to adhere and they do not fit in one of the boxes. They presented with few boxes to fit into, and they don't fit into any of those boxes. And they're looking for their identity, and they come here where they're asked to be who they are and to take time to figure out who are they. And um, uh, maybe they need to create their own box, and maybe they don't fit in the box at all. Maybe they need a sphere. <clears throat> so that's a second kind of student um, that we have. I say in terms of like we have public school kids, we have homeschoolers, we have kids who come from Waldorf schools or other alternative schools, just really all across the board. And we have kids who already done a year at college and then they say that does not working for me. It does not make sense. I need to travel within. I need to travel within me. I need to find out who am I. Um, so, yeah, homeschoolers, college kids. We have a whole range of wonderful students. They're all though amazing. They all have one thing in common is they want to be here. We would never take a student who does not desire to be here. And uh, prior to being here, they have to train. They have to physically, seriously train to be ready for what's put in front of them. They need to dehydrate a whole bunch of food in preparation for their journey. So they have to be serious about wanting to be here. We'd never take someone... If their parents say, we want you to just go to Crocker, we will say no. I love that requirement as a condition of enrollment. And I do the same thing with my own programs. And I interview participants to make sure that nobody's being put up to this by their parents, because that's just not going to end up in a good situation for anyone. Um, what is the connection between Crocker and Waldorf? Sure. Um, <clears throat> so my, my partner, Lynn, um, was a Waldorf kindergarten teacher for a number of years, and uh, we have uh, educated three out of our four children in the Waldorf tradition. <clears throat> and at some point in Crocker's life, we were approached by Waldorf school to conduct a class trip. And after the class trip, we noticed that it is very interesting to work with Waldorf schools, that students are... Uh, much more prepared to uh, take what we offer to them compared to some of the other students. They were, um, they had ability to listen really well. They knew how to work with their hands already. Uh, they already had beautiful singing voices. There was a lot of alignment to what we were doing. So we discovered that um, the philosophy and work of Rudolf Steiner and uh, were able to take a lot of this and also then see over time that um, at the time when Rudolf Steiner came with Waldorf education to the world, uh, some of the challenges were not the same as they are today. Uh, and so while we are students of Waldorf education, we also realize that we need to go further and beyond 
the prescribed uh, methods because there was no methods prescribed for educating children in harmony with nature, for providing opportunities to love to be outside because at that time people probably were still outside quite a bit just by the necessity of life. And the biggest part, I suppose, where we need to work is the will, development of the will, because <clears throat> um, the realization that the modern child has an undeveloped will force and all the opportunities that are in front of them presented by our incredibly wealthy civilization with a wealth of opportunities, those opportunities are not taking advantage of very often because the young person lacks the will to, to act on what's available to them. And that is where our work comes in. It's probably our primary work is helping young people to invoke their own will force to, to do good in the world. What motivates you to work primarily with teenagers as opposed to younger children or as opposed to older people in their 20s or 30s? Well, we actually do quite a lot of work with, with younger children. The, we wouldn't have been able to offer a semester program if we didn't work with younger children. Our 350 summer campers, <clears throat> probably vast majority of them fall somewhere between age 11 and, and 15. <clears throat> um, but the working with teenagers uh, on a semester-long program is, is just so, so awesome because um, on one hand, these are young people who are still full of idealism for the world. They believe that everything is possible, which, by the way, I do too. <clears throat> um, and so you don't. There's no cynicism in them. There's no need to spend a lot of time dissolving the darkness and the cynicism that uh, some of the some of the young people have at, the, oh, at a later time in their life when they've been disillusioned. So this is not a disillusioned crowd. Um, and yet they have opportunity already. They've developed critical thinking. They've developed uh, physical, their physical bodies are developed so they can push themselves. They could carry a full-size backpack. Uh, they could learn. You could start teaching them uh, in many different ways. You could start bringing analytical information to them. Uh, you could really teach them how to paddle, climb, not just show them. So uh, I'd say it's like a cast. It's a great age. You can you can make a huge difference at the time because the human being is hungry for learning, is able to learn, and yet has not been uh, discouraged by the world from learning everything that's around them. That's why teenagers... I agree. And those are the same reasons that I work with teenagers myself. It seems like a golden opportunity window that you can't really get when they're 11 and you, it's much more difficult to get when they're 21. And the other thing about this is too, that the way, for some reason, the way it works in our society is uh, people treasure their children when they're children and then they need their adults to um, join the workforce. And this whole time of being a teenager, people tend to be afraid of teenagers and really disempower them. There's no good place for them. They are not children anymore. They're perfectly capable of working hard 
and being useful it's just giving them opportunity for being useful everybody wants to be of use and if you're not of use if nobody's needing you because you're not yet a consumer and you're not yet <clears throat> uh, join the workforce then what are you supposed to do you're going to get into trouble and of every sort because how can you go about living in a society that does not need you, that locks you in a school, that locks you in places and just tells you, you just need to learn, learn, learn. The rest of the time, just stay out of the way. Just keep on learning. We'll need you later. Um, we need them right now. Now, our teenagers split 30 cords of wood here. Um, they cook all their food. They shovel uh, miles of snow path. We need that. We need their work. The way Croker is structured, the farm wouldn't work if we didn't have those wonderful, hardworking kids, etc. I'm nodding my head vigorously over here. You can't see it, but I'm so with you. Um, what kind of personal transformations have you witnessed in this work um, through teenagers or, or younger or older folks? Mm -hmm. Well, so for sure, for sure you could say that you know, six months spent living in nature is transformational. And we, I should probably not say that it's because of Kroka, it's just because of the fact. Just take any human being, put them out completely in a different environment from where they are. Say uh, that you have to split your firewood, shovel your snow path, cook three meals a day. Um, and and travel 700 miles <clears throat> it just by nature of the fact of it it will be transformational um so i would say yes program is transformational how much of this transformation is us versus how much of this transformation is all the forces of nature around us i'm not i'm not sure um the after some time of being of living outside and traveling the world start working on you in amazing ways you know you, you I look at the eyes of the people and their eyes are very very different their eyes have this depth and clarity in them um the way they interact with each other the opportunity to really i mean how often in the modern life can you spend two hours a day just sitting and listening to other people share about their lives without being in a rush to go somewhere. <clears throat> it's an amazing opportunity for transformation. The question always is, what happens next? How can you make the short-term transformation affect, measurably affect your life? And that's a, that's a hard question to answer because um, you look at students at graduation day and your heart jumps with, you know, with joy uh, yet a few months later someone could be back to destructive patterns in their life <clears throat> it's a possibility too so we cannot overestimate what we could do because we cannot change anybody people can you know we can give people opportunity to change it's up to them whether they're going to change or not and it's all about will you now once everybody of course who doesn't want to change everybody wants to do better um, it's just a question of, in six months of time, can we really give someone support that they need to make a long-term permanent change? Uh, and that is why we are working on creating a year-long program now. The semester is not long enough and we need to go longer. And that is also why majority of our semester students are alumni of our short-term programs and so this is a multi-year commitment 
um, that really, if anything is going to produce a change, it's a consistent multi-year commit commitment. Misha, I'd like to close on a personal question. You've chosen a line of work that is physically demanding because I know you, you participate in a lot of the wilderness expeditions. It's mentally demanding and it's emotionally demanding. Uh, what keeps you doing this? What keeps you showing up for work each day? Well, I'd say that being out on the expedition is a lot less demanding than being in the office today. <laughs> and I'd do much better work answering your questions if we were skiing side by side i would um, speak with a lot more ease <clears throat> so i love uh i love the uh, living outdoors um it's not a strain on me um and i see my family over the course of my life my four boys only about 50 percent of the time but the 50 percent of the time i see them are really rich and special and every day is a gift when i'm with my family uh, when I'm out on an expedition, my family is my students, and I put a, I have ability to not think about anything else, but just be right where I am, and that's a gift that I um, am blessed with to just be able to be where I am and be be happy with that. Um, the expeditions themselves are not all that physically challenging. I mean, they are physically challenging, but I love the challenge and I love the healthy lifestyle and I love the beating of the weather on my on, on my body. That's all good. The returning back is where the challenges are for me, coming back um, into the office environment with 250 emails waiting for me and tremendous amount of office work, the price that I have to pay as a the director of the organization for spending 50% of my time in the field. That price is really high and uh, sometimes unsustainable. You know, getting up at four in the morning and putting in very, very long days. Um, yet, um, I'm fortunate. You know, I do not know anyone else in my position who is able to spend so much time in the outdoors. Being with teenagers is not work for me. It's it's uh, being out on the expedition is a paid vacation. I'm sorry. I know insulted many people by saying this before, but uh, when I go on vacation with my children, I go on a wilderness expedition. Except that my children, they don't know. They're not always going to listen to their father. They're going to argue. Well, students don't argue. Students are respectful. They listen really well. So um, I cannot complain. Uh, what keeps me going? Uh, I love the. You know, I love the lifestyle. I love to share. What I know with kids, I see it's going by the wayside. You know the ways we travel, the many things that we, many things that we teach here. How um, freedom of being able to teach students how to drink wild water, how to cook their food on fire, how to walk barefoot. That long is us alive. Um, that's yeah. That's what keeps me going. Um, good life. We're living a good life here. Easy to keep going, Blake. My guest today has been Misha Goldsmith. Thank you, Misha, for being on the show. Thank you so much. This is the Real Education Podcast. This show is produced with the assistance of Zen Zenith, who also created the music. For more episodes, visit blakebowles.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.